You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Well, I'm in my temporary winter studio while winter rages up in Kansas City. I just noticed that the low for this coming day or two is going to be around five, six degrees above zero and maybe go down to zero at night. So uh, (laughs) be jealous, man. Be jealous. We have a guest today who is an acclaimed historian, journalist, and author has written several historical narrative books, which I find an interesting form, Russell Shorto. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. Now, you've written, I think, it looked like one of your first book was The Island at the Center of the World, which was a narrative history of the early Dutch founders of Manhattan. Was that your first book? No, actually, my first book was called Gospel Truth. It was about the historical Jesus. It was about biblical scholarship. Oh, interesting. I guess they they didn't really pump that up when I was searching you on the internet, but... But, but the uh, island at the center of the world is the one that, you know, that was my bestseller. So right. it's, uh, that, the first one that got wide notice. That, that's why it gets pumped up. Well, that's interesting. The historical Jesus, I've read some of those different things, and I always find that fascinating. I went to Israel once, and it's a fascinating place, man. It just, I don't know, you know, to separate fact from fiction and stories from myths, and, and reality is just never-ending speculation in there. Yeah, if you are a lover, I mean, you don't even have to be a religious person. If you're a lover of history, Israel just yes. boggles your mind. Yes, yeah, I wouldn't. I'm not particularly a religious person, but it the history is just like you say, boggles your mind. Anyhow, you also wrote a uh, Descartes' Bones, Amsterdam: A History of the World's Most Liberal City. Uh, I bet there's a lot of people agree with that today. <laughs> and uh, Revolution Song, which I found. It's described as a first-rate intellectual history, and it's the story of the founding of our country in which you use letters, diaries, and, and other writings from the early settlers and people that, that founded the United States, I guess, around the time of the Revolution in the middle of the 1700s. That's, and you make that into story form. That would be a—I wish they had those kind of histories when I was taking high school history. It would have been a lot more interesting. Well, that one was, my idea was to take six people from different walks of life. A slave, a woman who was the daughter of a British officer, a Native American from different walks of life who all lived through the Revolutionary War and weave their stories together. So you get kind of, it's not just from the perspective of the guys in the white powdered wig. Yeah. I heard a guy describe something like that to me as, you know, we always look at all the blood and guts and battles going down the river. Well, what about all the people along the sides of the river? What was going on in their lives? That's what's important. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that's what I tried to do. The trickiest thing with that was to find people who, like a slave, for example, whose life was well-documented right. enough that I could you know, recreate it. So I found, uh, I sifted through a lot of what they call slave narratives. And one, this guy dictated his, Venture Smith his name was, he dictated his life story. He traveled from, he was taken in slavery in Africa, brought to America, lived his whole life in slavery, eventually bought his freedom, lived through the war. And so his is a remarkable story. Yeah, that would be, yeah, to find those stories. The slave narratives I did, at my first documentary was about slave life in Missouri. And to find those slave narratives was, I had not even heard of them before I did that. And it was, I mean, it was a find to be able to, I had actors then record bits and pieces from different Missouri slaves to illustrate what that life was like. Yeah, those are invaluable resources for a historian. 
Well, we're here to talk about your most recent book. And of course, all my fans out there, the wiretappers out there, love the mob. And you wrote a book about your family history, which includes some mob activity. The title is Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. Now, you have some immense historical narrative skills that you put to work, I got a feeling, in this family story. And you had resources that were, what do you call that, firsthand, or there's a primary sources for sure. Yep. Yeah, I, um, you know, it turns out this is about my grandfather and his brother-in-law who ran kind of the mob franchise in my hometown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And those guys are dead and gone. So it was actually... It was a relative, my mother's cousin, who I later learned had been numbers runner and worked in the pool hall for them. Uh, he was uh, in his 80s and said to me, hey, you're the writer in the family. Why don't you write this story? And I had never, it had never been in my mind to do that because we all kind of grew up knowing it. But also knowing, you know, let's we don't talk about that. Yeah. So I was kind of an obedient son, and I grew up not even really thinking about it much. But once he said that, Frank, his name is, and once he said to me, hey, you know, what are you going to do about the story about your grandfather and the mob? It kind of broke down that little wall that I had built up in my mind. And I realized all those guys are dead and gone. It's This is his treat. I should do what I can to try to get it while there's still something there. And he, Frank, then put out the word among his old pals who had, these are old guys, and they mm-hmm. were the, at the time, they were the kids who looked up to these guys and admired them and wanted to be like them. And so we met several times at Panera Bread, their hangout. <laughs> and, you know, they would tell me all these stories. And the first meeting was four hours long. I recorded the whole thing. Yeah. And then, as you say, I write nonfiction. So I wasn't just going to write a book that's made up of a bunch of old memories, which, as we all know, are not necessarily uh, accurate. So I then went about, you know, I filed FBI Freedom of Information Act requests, and I got my dad who was friends with the chief of police in town, and so he gave me access to the police records and the county courthouse. So I was able then to find this underlayer of solid data and stitch that together with these stories. Interesting. You know, I've just been reaching out to some different children of and grandchildren of mob people. I get contacts from contacted by children and grandchildren of people in Kansas City because I work to organize crime and they think I know something more than what many times I know. And they've listened to the podcast and every one of them talked about their childhood and how confusing it was what they heard about their relative and what they knew of them personally. And I'm putting together a show with some interviews. I've got one guy who's the son of a man that's become a friend of mine, and he wants to write his own book about his upbringing. So I want to put together a show. I'll probably put this show kind of maybe in conjunction if I can get that going. I've got two or three of them that said they'd they'd give me some sound bites to talk about their childhood and those secrets that they kept and how confusing that was for them. So I I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. When you say that, that brings to mind how people in my family, for the most part, were interested in, I mean, if they knew something and sharing it with me, but they were also interested in what I found because everybody knew a little, yeah. it was just whispers. But the idea that I was going to try to put all this together into one story, put it in the context of its time and all that, even though there were people who knew a lot more than I did about certain things, they were all curious what I was going to come up with because <laughs> you know, they'd never tried to put it all together, to, you know, to figure it out. Because when it's all 
whispers. Yeah. What do you got? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. The last one was the niece of a guy that owned two or three strip clubs that were connected. And she got hold of me and I said, you know, I don't know much more. I remember the guy and I remember he was a victim of an extortion attempt and and he was connected to the mob. And let's, I said, let's do a Freedom of Information Act request. And I did. And for some reason, I got it back real quick. And there was like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And they didn't even charge me any extra. It was over the, whatever it was, a 50-page limit. It was somehow easy for him to get. And I looked at it and like, oh, my God. He was like working to line up all the strip clubs in the bi-state area and because so the mob could have a piece of all of them. And the FBI had run a big investigation. And I kind of remember that, but I wasn't really part of that. And so I sent those to her and she said, oh my gosh, I'll have to take some days to digest this. It was amazing. <laughs> it could be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it, it was for her. It's been two weeks. I haven't heard back forever. <laughs> <laughs> She's digesting. Really? Sometimes I was a little nervous about it because sometimes people don't really want to hear some of that stuff, but maybe they do too. Yeah, there's definitely that. So this was about a small mob family who operated in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which I read up on it, and I've heard of Johnstown. It was like a factory town, a, a really rough and tough, brawling, probably had a big automotive factory and, and steel factories and things like that. Steel. steel mill. Coal mines on the outskirts and steel mills in town. And back in the day when it was really rollicking, they called it Little Chicago. Oh, really? Huh? Who were they controlled by? Did New York, were they kind of, or Pittsburgh, were they kind of the little brother? They were connected to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, okay. And yeah, interest in the orbit of Pittsburgh and all around there, Johnstown, Altoona, Braddock, New Kensington, Greensburg, all those towns. You know, people don't realize how all over the country, small, medium-sized towns mm -hmm. had their kind of mob franchise going. Really? And it's really based out of prohibition. I would assume it was big. Were your relatives involved in the liquor <laughs> business? My grandfather's life tracks that whole development of the mob. His, his parents emigrated from Sicily, were like in the mining town, they were restricted, then finally they moved into downtown, and remember his father was murdered, and his mother is left to raise nine children, Prohibition comes in, she's got a still operating in the, <laughs> yeah. in the house, and he's out selling Coke bottles, stoppered up with you know, moonshine. <laughs> she was busted once and uh, spent time in prison, but she was doing it on a, there was a local guy, kind of a pre-mob neighborhood figure who yeah. had, I think the, the impression I get is all these different stills going in different houses and he kind of controlled them and they paid to him. Then as by the end of Prohibition, my grandfather's a young man and just like what was happening around the country, he has shifted his income stream from booze to gambling. Yeah. And he was at that time running card games out of the back of his, out of the trunk of his car. And there are several arrests for that when he was young. And then another guy comes from the Philly mob and he seems to have been given the job to kind of start the franchise in Johnstown. He meets my grandfather's sister. They get married. And my grandfather was the local guy who knew the scene. So they formed a partnership and that then became the basis for the thing. And it's really from World War II into the 60s, that was their heyday. Was that this Joseph Regino? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And your grandfather was his brother-in-law. Is that That's right. all right? I yeah. get those connections. Can't tell the uh, players without a scorecard sometimes in these uh, crime yeah. families. You got to figure out how they're related. Yeah, my grandfather was named after Russ Shorto. Was yeah. yeah. And so gambling definitely was a cash cow of organized crime, the Italian based, La Cosa Nostra, Mafia, whatever you want to call it, organized crime throughout the whole United States after Prohibition. And 
What form did that take? I noticed in uh, Francis Ford Coppola made a couple of statements. He said, this is remembrance of his grandfather and great uncle's lives of slots, pinball machines, tip seals, skeets dice, and places like the Meldew House and City Cigar. Meldew Lounge and City Cigar. Now, what is a tip seal? Do you remember? Tip seals were kind of like a lottery ticket. It was a board. All these guys described it to me. It was a board that they would get, and they would have a number of these different seals, like tickets on them. Yeah. And you would buy one. There are different prices. And you'd instead of scratching, you'd pull it yeah. off. And if your number matched the number underneath, then you won, you know, <laughs> a buck or five bucks or whatever. Yeah. So people play those all the time. The original um, scratcher. I'll be darned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the centerpiece of their operation was a numbers game. They called it the GI Bank, and I think they named it after, you know, making giving it kind of a patriotic feel to yeah. honor the returning troops or something. So the GI Bank, like half the town played it. Everybody over a certain age who I interviewed in town remembers, knows all them, played the GI Bank, knew what was going on. This was all wide open. Everybody, yeah. This was considered kind of a public utility. And I think it's interesting. I'd be interested in your take on this. The rise and fall of the mob, especially in towns like this, where it's really on, based on gambling as entertainment, tracking that against the rise of television mm. in the U.S. Oh. 1955% of U.S. households had a TV. By 1960, 90% did. And that is really their arc. That was their heyday, the 50s, you know. And as more people are staying home watching Jackie Gleason, yeah. they don't have to go out and, you know, play the numbers or whatever else they're doing for, the, for you know, a little entertainment. That is an interesting comparison. And, you know, there's a lot. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would go out and Saturday night, We'd ask mom, where's daddy going? And mom would say, oh, he's going downtown to shoot the bull. And he was just going downtown. You know, there wasn't any TV and he would just go downtown and just talk with the other men. And he wasn't a big drinker or anything, but he'd go downtown and just socialize with other men. And when you get a lot of men together, that's where you're going to get gambling. That's for sure. <laughs> Every time. And, and during that time, sports gambling wasn't such a big deal. I think if you think about it, Television comes in and sports becomes the mainstay of television and sports gambling takes over. The numbers goes out. They were barely running numbers in Kansas City in 1971 when I came on the police department. It was mainly just poor people. And, of course, the government got into the scratchers and basically the numbers uh, pretty quickly in the, by the 80s, I'd say. But sports gambling became the deal, it seemed to me, like horse racing. They have a race wire there and horse racing. Yeah, they had they, yeah, the ticker tape. And they did, starting in the 40s, they were big on boxing and baseball. But you're right. I think it's really in the 60s that sports kind of takes over from a lot of these other things. Another thing that they had was pinball. They owned a pinball machine company. Yeah. And it was really common to use pinball for for uh, gamble. You know? And the way it worked, essentially, is you win three games mm -hmm. when you play. And what you would do if you rack up 10 free games or whatever, you'd then go up to the bartender. The house was in on it, yeah. know, wherever the football was. So you go up to the bartender and he'd give you five bucks or whatever yeah. that your winnings equated to. And then he would split that with the boys. Uh -huh. That's how, and the beauty of that is it's a form of gambling. There's no product involved. It's not like the IRS can say, where are those packs of chewing gum or yeah. whatever, huh. you know, the cupid balls or something. Huh. You know, Interesting. Just, yeah. These are free games and you just reset the machine and uh, you know, nobody's the wiser. <laughs> wow. Now, did they do many slot machines? You know, Frank Costello in New York was huge in getting slot machines out throughout the United States. And they tried to get them in Missouri, and it kind of fell through. And they were all down through the South. Did they have a big slot machine operation? 
In fact, they were against slot machines because other people were starting to bring them into the social clubs. Yeah. And they got an Italian guy in as DA, so he was their guy. Their first job was they wanted him to crack down on these slot machines huh. because they were putting a damper on their pinball business. Yeah, and that money was probably going back out of town or something, or part of it was, I got a feeling. So, you know, bring that up. But the DA's point was he didn't want to do what they wanted because he knew that these owners of these social clubs, they were using slot machines to make, you know, to offset their own income. Too. Yeah. You know, so he, was, he felt like they're not going to be able to get by without the slot <laughs> Interesting. So speaking of that, now, what about the political influence of the local government in Kansas City? It was not unlike Johnstown, I'm sure, and Chicago and all the other cities from Basically, here back east, Kansas City back east, they really infiltrated the local government. Is that was it the same way? The center of their operation was a pool hall called City Cigar. It was called City Cigar because it was two doors from City Hall. <laughs> and the mayor would come in pretty much on a daily basis and hang out with them. City Cigar was the basis from that was kind of the elite pool room where the lawyers and the you know managers of the department stores and yeah. people like that would hang out. There were a couple of blocks away was right beside the mill gate was another pool hall for the working class guys. But yeah, they would pay off the cops and it was that regular system where they would once a month or whatever they'd let them know we're gonna have to make a raid, so they'd give them a little warning and there would be an old guy who they'd leave behind to take the fall and they'd leave him with some bedding slips and things like that. So, you know, that was just a regular routine, how they kept things going and kept, the newspaper could write up, okay, we busted these guys and then we're doing our job. Yeah, that was the same way in Kansas City. Periodically, they'd do a vice raid and take in a few people. And and in our city, it was primarily the black gambling games that they would raid. And But they'd hit the Italians every once in a while and kind of give them like a $5 fight and have a bunch of headlines and, and then go on. Yeah, and Gary, does this resonate with you? What I was struck by was how these guys, when they were coming up, my grandfather and his brother-in-law, they really seemed to admire. Now, these are guys who grew up in America. They weren't yeah. the ones who you know, grew up in Italy and came here. And yet they're very totally discriminated against their yeah. generation, you know. But they're in American schools and they're taught to admire American capitalism. You mm-hmm. know? And all these guys like Astor and Carnegie and Frick and, you know, these big wigs. They just did what they wanted, you know. They essentially ran their own mob outfits in yeah. many cases. Yeah. And so I think they really admired them. In fact, my grandfather's partner, his aliases were Ford and Forbes. <laughs> so I mean, he was basically advertising his admiration for American capitalism. So <laughs> I think in many ways, even this like controlling the political races and paying people off yeah. and things, that's what they did. Yeah, they yeah. <laughs> I agree, I agree. And another correlation was when Italians first got here, of course, they had a strange language. They were darker complected. Irish were already here. They already spoke the native language. And the Irish tried to keep the Italians out from businesses, from getting business licenses, from any government jobs, which is always a way out of uh, poverty for poor people is somebody gets a government job. And you know, pretty soon they get a couple of relatives, you know, to this day. Now, Hispanics are doing it quite a little bit. And it's very similar to blacks, but blacks can never, African-Americans can never really push on through. Everybody's kept them pushed out. And so then they went to narcotics later on in like the 60s and 70s. They saw the opportunity in narcotics where you got all these young men who are bright and educated, not educated, but bright and have this native intelligence and good organizers. 
and they're looking for opportunity, and the underground economy is the only opportunity that's available for them, just like the Italians during Prohibition. I keep noticing that parallel every time I do one of these stories that goes across several generations. Yeah. I mean, it's really the American way. Yeah. And but I was struck by that, too. I, I wasn't aware of that before, that tension between the Italian and Irish communities. You know? Oh, yeah. It also had to do with religion. I mean, they're both Catholic, yeah. but they had very different <laughs> yeah. styles. Yeah. The, the Irish were kind of freaked out by this, like, Southern <laughs> Italian. Oh, it was very, like, ornate and... Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and parades. Have parades, carried i've seen one of those parades in spain it's like wow that's something carrying the crosses and the, all the embroidered robes and colors and carrying some kind of a saint maybe and yeah <laughs> and i went to you know doing research for this i went to a town that my great-grandparents came from in sicily uh-huh. and they are full-on with all that stuff still all those saint parades and you know and now i'm friends on facebook with all these people <laughs> Well, we're always afraid of the other, the people that aren't like us. So <laughs> to this day, kind of one last question here. We've been here for a while. Their boss had a rule, no Cadillacs, at least in Johnstown. Do you remember that? And did your family like really practice that? I knew a really good professional criminal and our guys in Kansas City, they really were on the down low. They didn't have big fancy houses. They had kind of nicer houses. And they may have a Buick or, and a couple of them had Cadillacs or one had a Lincoln, but nothing ostentatious and nobody dressed that. And, and this guy told me, he said, you know, when I go out of town, he said, I'll rent a limo and I'll stay in the nicest places. But is that exactly, exactly the same thing early on when they're first married and they're coming up, they live in these real kind of ethnic ghettos yeah. where they're all packed into the house together. But then once they start to get established, they move to a nice middle-class neighborhood wasn't anything flashy and they didn't drive Cadillacs they didn't have tailored suits they always wore suits but never tailored suits however (laughs) once a year I mean every summer they spent a month or more in Atlantic City and they'd have this parade of cars going down Atlantic City and they would stay at uh, Patton Patton House I think it's called it was like the swankiest hotel in Atlantic City they would rent a whole suite they would have room service the whole time they would really live it up there that was okay Interesting. I did that myself one time with my kids. <laughs> but it wasn't the swankiest place, but it was a pretty nice place and I paid for it all. You know, kind of a once in a lifetime deal. Sometimes we do. But <laughs> I tell you what, things are the same but different all over, aren't they? And all different. And, and you know, what struck me was this, how similar but different it is, the story that we know, the big city story. Yeah. And the small, medium-sized town. It was in Johnstown, it was in Schenectady and Fresno and Amarillo and yeah. Montana places it was the same thing but it was a little bit more i think a little bit more innocent in those places yeah i think that was partly because you know as long as you were keeping things under control you could operate in the open yeah but if you started murdering people or something then the authorities are going to come in the neighbors aren't going to want to be buying the services you're operating and all that but as long as it was under control it went on for year after year you know that's same way here in kansas city and i've noticed that of course i've talked to people that from that time And even the older policemen that when I came on were about ready to retire. They were on during the 50s. And there was just more, I want to say, small-time casual kind of corruption and this blending of the mob, of the politicians, the city government, the county government, law enforcement. It was more casual and accepted. It was every once in a while there'd be a new broom would sweep clean. 
But then they'd go on. And those guys, as we had a judge there, a city judge once said, told these guys, these vice guys back then, they brought in a bunch of black guys for a gambling game. He told these guys, he said, I'm dismissing all these charges. When you go down to the Kansas City Club and bring those gamblers in to me, then I'll do something about everybody the same. And so they provided the service, first the alcohol that everybody wanted, then the gambling that everybody wanted, the entertainment and without TV. I think it's a fascinating time that in a way, we I hate it shouldn't look back at with nostalgia, but in a way it was a kinder, gentler time almost, it seemed like. Well, it's interesting too that it's a product of American discrimination and American moralizing. Yeah. Gambling and against alcohol during yeah. prohibition. And those two things created an opportunity. Yeah. And discrimination created this need, like I'm not going to be able to go to college or become a, a head of some company or something. So here's a, you know, I'll open this franchise. <laughs> yeah, you can make money this way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just doing a documentary about a vote fraud in 1946 in Kansas City. And, and I was interviewing a guy who was an expert on black political activities during the 30s, 40s and 50s. And he remarked that that was the above ground opportunities were not available to people. That's where I really started noticing this. So the underground economy was available. And so African-Americans and Italians who were being squeezed out, like I said before, but then they got political because they realized that what these English and Irish had done to come into the greater society is get involved with politics is what an Italians got involved with your local politicians. And it's just the American story. It's fascinating. And, you know, you talk about blacks and, of course, the number starts in Harlem. And that's related to the mistrust that they have for banks and how banks, yeah. they, they can't get a mortgage from a bank yeah. or anything like that. So, I mean, there's a reason they call the numbers game a bank. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these guys, I mean, in Harlem, they were, the, the thinking was, I'm going to play a nickel a day or whatever it is on my number. And five years from now or 20 years from now, it's going to hit big. And that'll, you know, my CD mature. Oh, I'll be done. Yeah. You know, that's how they're going to play a bank and skip the official banks. Oh, yeah. Our black numbers guy, a guy named Peyton, he then formed a relationship with the top Irish politician and he they formed a newspaper together and he ran his numbers bank and some joints. And, and then when the white Republicans from the white silk stocking areas Every once in a while, they want they swept all this out, and that just destroyed all those jobs and the numbers for a while. And of course, it came back, but it is interesting. All right, Russell, this has been great. It's been an interesting discussion for me, particularly. I like finding somebody that has that kind of larger societal take on this organized crime, because mostly we look at it for the titillating stories. <laughs> but it's much more than titillating stories, isn't it? Right. No, no, it's part of, it was really part of the American history in so many ways. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Russell, for being on the show. Thank you. All right. It's been interesting. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Russell. Thanks so much, Gareth. It's nice to talk to somebody who's so knowledgeable. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. All right. Goodbye. Care. Bye. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. 
Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.